Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds that, and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after, after it was sold, was it not your, at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such a price. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always for your word. It's ever encouraging us, strengthening us, warning us, revealing things to us, Father God, about yourself and about ourselves, Father God. We ask you to breathe upon this text, Father God, that we can see What was taking place in this awful time, this great reverence of God that was taking place, God? Let us see, let us taste, let us know this magnificent work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lying to God. Who would ever think, it's like an oxymoron, lying to God. Would you consider yourself a liar to God? Be careful. (laughs) be careful we could all be self-deceived and we're going to find out by the end of the sermon that chances are more of us are self-deceived than we could ever thought possible it's part of our nature but this is a strong text and it's something that I taught on many many years ago and it's sort of just the first time I read it many probably almost 25 years ago it it left an impression on me what was taking place But to understand chapter 5 and lying to God, we have to understand what happened in chapter 4. On one side of the page, we have contrasting desires. That's what's going on. Chapter 4, there's contrasting desires with chapter 5. On one side of the page is a thriving community, as we read in chapter 4. 
believe is being led by the Spirit of God to meet all the needs of each other without any personal recognition. Nobody was letting know what their left hand was doing to the right. On the other hand, on the other page is a story of a husband and wife who conspired to look like there was something on the outside that they weren't on the inside. The story doesn't start in chapter 4, and uh, even in chapter 2 where we see similar circumstances exist. This chapter really starts in Gethsemane with Jesus' prayer for his disciples. If you remember, he prayed for his disciples and all those who would believe in him through their preaching. That they would be what? They would be one. As you father and I father are one. Christ paid for that with his life. The fulfillment of it is taking place. What he prayed for, what he died for, is actually happened. The spirit is producing the fruit of oneness. Love is the impulse But not everybody was compliant. To understand the second story of Ananias and Sapphira, we must understand the first about the community of believers who had everything in common and they gave as everybody had need. With no recognition, that's very, very important. There's no recognition. Luke has given us a progress report of the early church. The gospel song is spreading People are being saved. The fruit of the kingdom is being produced. The church is producing a community of spirit-filled, loving believers who are meeting each other's needs as Paul teaches about the law of Christ, bear with one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's happening. Everything God wants is actually happening. The prayer that Jesus prayed in, in John 17, it's having its immediate fulfillment. Not just over 2,000 years to me and you today, but there's an outpouring of the Spirit of God on all the believing Jews. Gentiles haven't heard the gospel yet. Jerusalem's filled with the doctrine of Christ. The Holy Spirit is still in the hearts. There's genuine worship going up in Jerusalem for the first time. God is seeking those who worship Him in what? Spirit and in truth. It's happening. It's really, really happening. Then why? What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? I ask why this story? When we try to ascertain the reason why Luke would write about this, is not really easy. We want to see he's writing as an historian. So he's putting together these stories as the gospel spreads. And it starts in Jerusalem in the upper room, and it's going around Jerusalem now, and it's going to go to Samaria and Judea and to the rest of the Mediterranean world. But we have this story. It almost doesn't fit. Or does it? This story has so much to do with the genuine work of the Holy Spirit in every Christian congregation. I will try to bring out the meaning while I'm preaching, but there's one thing I would like to draw attention to first that's usually missed when you read this. Throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has always been there. He's making cameo appearances throughout Genesis, throughout the prophets, throughout the Psalms. They speak about the Holy Spirit. It's not a personal, you don't see it. You don't see him as a personal being. He's mentioned, but the Holy Spirit is never a main player in the Old Testament. It's always the Father. Then Jesus comes along and It's Jesus who introduced us to the personal side of the Holy Spirit. But even 
that was mainly throughout his teaching. The gospel narrative is on Christ and his work of atonement. The epistles are an interpretation of the life of Christ and how the Christian congregation lives around the death and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is still the main character. Acts introduces us to the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. And I don't want you to miss this. It's called biblical theology. It's a, it's a biblical revelation of God revealing himself to us. In the Old Testament, he's El Shaddai, he's Elohim, and he's the Lord of all, he's the Redeemer, and he's, re, he's revealing himself. Throughout, throughout Old Testament history, we're learning more and more. And then the Son comes, and we know it's Father and Son, and the redeeming work of the Son. And now the Spirit of God has come, and now we see a Trinity, and, 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 the, and, and the doctrine of the Trinity is developing now, and we know that the Holy Spirit is the power behind the cross. He's the power who raised Christ. He makes the cross real. Without the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Son of God, if He dies and rises again, makes no difference to you and me. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, to introduce us to Him, to open up our hearts, to receive the things that Paul and the other apostles have to teach us. But He's always this power, this this influence. Yes, He's a real person. But it's not until we get into the fifth chapter that we see for the first time the Holy Holy Spirit is called God. We see him in his personal being now. Not the fruit he can produce. Not the power he can give. Not the ability to transform the Christian's heart. Not the ability to make us bold. But we see Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to miss that. The Holy Spirit is getting his due. He's being elevated for the first time in all of Scripture. Next to the Father and next to the Son. He has his rightful place within the church. The circumstances here are, it's because of this, it's important because that's behind the severity the awful severity of a man coming in and saying, oh yeah, I did do that. Dead. Wife comes in, did your husband, oh yeah, sure, we did. Dead. Dead, dead, dead. No witness, no prosecution, no defense attorney, no second chance, no excuses, no justification, just Dead. Peter must have been shocked when Ananias fell down. He wasn't expecting that. He just asked the question. Did you sell the proceeds for such and such? He was being a, it was pastoral. And we'll get into the reasons why. And right before him, dead. He was lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. The circumstances here are similar to Judas selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, even though he walked with the Son of God physically, quickly sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. 
The same with this husband and wife. Even though they were in the presence of God the Spirit and his activity was overwhelming, the church is going crazy. They're giving it all away, giving it to the apostles. They're dropping at their feet. They're overwhelmed by the work of the Spirit of God. They easily lied to him like it was nothing. In the face of all the evidence, this is just as bad as the Pharisees condemning Christ in the midst of the ministry of the Holy Spirit by raising the dead. In the midst of them healing the blind, raising uh, the paraplegics up, they conspired to kill him. They saw the evidence. They were resisting the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira were resisting the Holy Spirit. They lied to the Holy Spirit. You might ask, but how? By trying, this is how they did it. By trying to look on the outside as though they were generous believers as they were being transformed on the inside by the Holy Spirit, devoting themselves to the Son of God, or oh, we're all on the same page. Me too. I'm, I'm in. I'm 100% in. But he wasn't 100% in. Everybody else was 100% in. Him and his wife were far, far from it. We're not on the same page. But really, there were imposters wanting to look like genuine believers, while all along they were devoted to themselves. Everybody else was giving it to the apostles. They were selling it and giving it to anybody as they had need. There was no me in it, no I in it. It was all everybody else. They were other conscious. And Ananias and Sapphira, they were themselves conscious. It was all about themselves. They were devoted only to themselves. They were calculating and self-serving. And like Judas, they got what they wanted. But like Judas, they never got to spend it. They weren't around long enough. So the most important and awe-inspiring part of this story is not Ananias and Sapphira. It's not, that's not it. But it's the great work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of everybody else. Their execution by God really highlights how awesome the rest of the work of God was in the hearts of all the other believers. It highlights the other story. And it starts in verse 32 and verse 34. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Verse 34. Not a needy person was among them. For as many as owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold These verses capture the magnitude of the Holy Spirit, God himself's ministry at work on the human heart. They were of one heart and one mind. This kind of unity is what Christ prayed for. This kind of unity is what Christ died for. This is the kind of unity that the Holy Spirit advances the kingdom of God by. It's one of the most important aspects of Christianity. For a house divided, what? House divided cannot stand. The kingdom of God doesn't advance. 
in disunity. You can't bring unity out of disunity. Only God does that. He, he works unity within us. This church, if this gets to permeate this, this kind of self-elevating and, and masquerading and this pretense that they're really involved when they're really about themselves is a virus. And God needed to deal with it quickly. Salvation was not individuality. Salvation from the beginning is solidarity. It is about others. It's about community. You cannot get away from that. This is what advances the kingdom of God. This is the very personal side of God. God is Trinity. God is unity. Unity in diversity. God is a social being. He brings people from diverse backgrounds and makes them of one mind and one heart. And they give all things for the common good. Let me tell you something. If you ever start seeing that, get out of the way. Don't get in the way of God. Ananias and Sapphira tried to get in the way of God. And the Holy Spirit's ministry always has this goal and this aim in his heart to bring unity to God's people, not diversity. There's a great scripture in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 3.17, and Paul says, If anyone tries to destroy the church of God, God will destroy him. Don't get in the way. I'll deal with more of this in application. No one said that what they had belonged to themselves. Think about it. Influx of thousands. We know already by number there was at least 5,000. And that's usually just men. There could have been up to 8,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. The influx of all these new converts in a short amount of time in Jerusalem. And many of them poor would have been a, a, a cause for financial and a logistical concern. How do we deal with it? Could you imagine here, you're praying, we're praying for revival, and then God pulls out a revival, then you're like, what do we do? They're all hungry. Who feeds them? We do. You don't go to the government. We feed them. We meet the need. We clothe them. We educate them. So no one has what? Need the church's job, not the government's job. We meet the needs of believers, but God had a problem. I mean, God didn't have a problem. God immediately met this problem. You know what it was? A new heart. Everybody just gave it. There was need. Here it is. Who taught you to do this? The Holy Spirit taught. First Thessalonians chapter 4. You have no need for anybody to teach you love. For God has taught you how to love. Amen. If the pastor has to sit down and week in and week out teach you how to love, you'll never ever love. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He teaches us to love and care and be concerned for one another. All you have to hear is once. Love, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. 
You never see anything in the scripture say, teach me how to love. Teach me how to pray. Disciples ask for that. But not how to love. We need to be confirmed in it. We need to be reaffirmed in it. We need to be encouraged in it. But it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something about these believers. These believers were more concerned about spiritual things than material things. They were more concerned about heavenly things than earthly things. These believers were living large. Large. Think about being free from every materialistic impulse. Think about it. Think about living in such a way you just absolutely abandon yourself to the trust of God. Think about the freedom. Think about all the intangibles of joy and love and self-control and gentleness and kindness and humility and fidelity. Just think about just living in trust. They're living large, free from the love of money, which enables them to see what a proper perception. Listen, when you see God, you cannot help but to see need. 1 John 4 talks about it. If you say you love God and see your brother in need and don't meet that need, how can you say you love him who you never seen when you don't love him who you can see? How? We can't do it. Everybody was involved, it says here. Both the wealthy, represented by landowners, the poor didn't own land. The wealthy owned land. And everybody else above the poverty line, it says, and no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own. It wasn't just the wealthy that was given. Everybody gave. It was a common confession. No one said, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It was a common confession. It was a creed. It was their creed. The whole church gave, small or great, was the same. Truly the kingdom of God was on earth as it is in heaven. It was real. What Christ prayed for, what Christ died for, was actually transpiring right before their eyes. And Luke introduces us to a man named Joseph, surnamed Barnabas. He was the encourager. And there's a reason Luke introduces him for two purposes. Barnabas has a big role in the book of Acts, up to the 13th chapter, and then he has a, a, a prominent role within the New Testament. But he also says something else. It's a stark contrast between the inner attitudes of Ananias and his wife with Joseph and the rest of the multitude of believers. This man, it says, was a Levite. And by right and by genealogy, And by calling, he was a privileged man within Jewish circles. Did you know that? He was. He recognized something. He recognized the spiritual authority of the apostles. He recognized the genuine work of the Holy Spirit. And he came and he humbled himself. He sold his land. And he came before ex-tax collectors, ex-fishermen, who by birth were nobody. And he lays it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas' life showcases this great work of God. Barnabas recognized something. 
Ananias and Sapphira did not realize. And it's into this great work of the Holy Spirit where humility and generosity were overflowing from everybody's heart. Where people thought more highly of themselves. No one thought more highly of themselves. Nothing was being done from selfish ambition and conceit. But instead, with humility, were counting others as more important than themselves. They weren't just looking out for their own personal interest, but they were looking out for the personal interest of others. In other words, nobody was thinking about themselves. Christ had liberating them from themselves. Could you imagine just waking up and thinking about how you can help other people? Do you ever think about coming to church and saying, you know something, church has nothing to do with me anymore. It is about Christ and his people. Period. That's religion. It's Christ and his people. I want to go to church and get nothing. Just give me someone else's need. That's all I need. That's what church was today. They were liberated. This truth is captured in verses 32 and 34. Listen to the attitude of this church. It says, Now the full number of those believed, the full number, and they were all of one heart and one soul. And all of them, no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own. This is everybody. But they all had everything in common. And because of that, the fruit of that was, there was not one needy person among them. And why? For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Into this spontaneous atmosphere, listen, into this spontaneous atmosphere of brotherly love and the ministry of the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of redeemed saints came the diabolically calculating personal ambitions of Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, this is a party. We're in. We're, we, we love Christ. We're in. We, we want to be counted amongst the humble, the generous, who the only people they were thinking about were themselves. They desired to be numbered with the army of the humble. To be recognized as truly spiritual, truly gifted, truly loving, devoted to Christ like everybody else is devoted to Christ. But that could have not been further from the truth. They were a sham. And they came to the apostles, not like, not like Joseph, not like Barnabas who came a Levite by calling, by genealogy, and he humbled himself. He sold his property. He gave it to the apostles. He laid it at their feet. He submitted to their authority. He submitted to their teaching. They came in with this whole scheme to pull it over Peter's eyes. They weren't thinking about the Holy Spirit. They're looking at ex-fishermen. They're thinking, this Peter. He doesn't know anything. Little did they know he was God's man. And they were lying to God himself. Make no mistake about it. When everybody else saw the apostles... They had a deep respect for the work of God. When Ananias and Sapphira saw him, they could have cared less. Peter meant nothing to them. They were a sham. They conspired together to pull one over on the apostles. They're just men. 
Honey, they'll never figure it out. You're right, honey. Keep some of the money. They won't know a thing. Everybody will think highly of us. They'll speak about us the way they spoke about the Levite, Barnabas, Joseph. We want to be recognized. That everybody else is being recognized. They're all talking amongst themselves how everybody's giving. And I want to be part of that. But I just don't want to give it all. But I want to give the appearance that I'm giving it all. I want to give the appearance that I'm all in. I want to give the appearance that I've crucified the flesh. I want to be like everybody else. I want everybody else. Oh, brother, sister. It was diabolical. And I use that word very strongly. Because that's what James says in James chapter 3. That's the wisdom that's earthly unspiritual and demonic because he says wherever jealousy and selfish ambition is there's every evil discord under the sun that's what they hit they're filled with ambition selfishness jealousy they want recognition but instead they found themselves lying to God and like I said this is a virus that needed to be attended to quickly it's the first Discipline we see in the New Testament in the Christian church. If you want to count Judas as number one, you can do that. And Peter didn't have to do anything except say this How come you are lying to the Holy Spirit? But there's more here. This was a virus that needed to be attended to quickly because sin was in the camp and it was getting closer to the front. It was making its way up the the ladder of leadership. This was evil ambition. These men, this man and his wife wanted the recognition that Barnabas had. And don't miss the contrast in chapter 5 when it says, but. Right after the introduction to Joseph, who's called Barnabas, who sold his land, humbled himself before the apostles, laid the proceeds at his feet, it says, but. But Ananias. Might as well say this, but Ananias was not like Joseph. He had ill intentions. He wanted the recognition that Barnabas had as one of the main players, but for all the wrong reasons. The lie here was the lie of pretense. Trying to give the appearance of being something other than what they were. And with the attention to hide the real purpose of something else. That's what pretense is. You make it sound like this, but you're really this, and you've got other ambitions behind you. That's evil ambition. That's what James 3 talks about. It's the wisdom of the, this world. That's why it's demonic. It's of this world. It, I come to you as somebody I'm really not, because I have a hidden agenda. Peter saw right through it. Praise God. The shepherd of the sheep should see right through this kind of stuff. Though the text doesn't say it explicitly, it's implied. Ananias and Sapphira will make a noise about themselves. We sold. Did you hear what we sold? Did you hear what we did? Is, is our name getting out there? You know, we gave so much. They will make a noise about themselves. To the point of such severe judgment of God. Don't miss this. God came down and Peter didn't even realize it and struck him dead. Dead. 
his wife. This man and his wife were beyond correction. That's why. God is patient towards our foolishness and desires to correct us in all our inner things of our heart. But this case is more deep. This is a willful and calculated display of human pride in the face of the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter says, you did not lie to man, but you lied to God. And Satan entered your heart. Though they thought nothing of the apostles' positions, like Barnabas did, they had no respect, they had no true humility. They were the antithesis of what was really going on here, where the spirit of truth was at the working on the hearts of all the members of the body of Christ. Satan was working on their heart, exploiting the high opinions of their self. And do you know why they had such high opinions of themselves? Because they had such a low view of Christ. That's why. Just listen to somebody. I listen. And I hear, when you hear such a high opinion of self, please understand something. They have not grasped the cross. They have not. Not at all. Make no mistake about it. Their arrogance was not due to ignorance. The arrogance was due to willful unbelief. One of the main dynamics taking place in this church that caused the Spirit's great work on the hearts of the people, don't miss it, is this. The people continued to listen to the apostles' teaching. That's why. Week in, And week out, the apostles taught, and they submitted their hearts week in and week out to the apostles. It transformed their heart because the apostles kept on talking about Christ. And the more you speak and expound and interpret Christ, the less we become. The less self-dependent we become. The less selfish we become. And Christ is liberated to do what he wants to do in the church. But week in and week out, when Sapphira heard and Ananias heard, they were not changed by one iota of the apostles teaching. They had such a low view of Christ. That's how it happens. Christ meant nothing to them. That's why it's so severe. Let me go into some application. It says that great fear or awe came upon the whole church as the story spread and they're hearing about what had taken place and it was not Peter killed the man or Peter killed the wife they knew God stepped in and bring judgment on them the church then like the church now needs to learn this lesson everybody needs to learn this lesson That God is God over the inner attitudes and intentions of the heart. Paul says it clearly. clearly He says, according to my gospel, Jesus Christ will judge the thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. That's the fear. Peter didn't have to say a thing except, how come? 
you said. And God took care of the rest. That's one of the deepest truths the church needs to know. That God resides over our inner attitudes. Our actions. Our words. Our thoughts. Our ambitions. Our pretense. God knows all this. Church discipline. Pretense like this cannot be tolerated. Though God doesn't come all the time and say, and, and poor people, we need a morgue. If God did this still today, we need a morgue in the basement. We need to have an altar here, we need to worship, and then carry people out here at the end of the day. Then nobody would come. Where's the pure in heart? They're downstairs in the morgue. But when it comes to pastoral, let, let me give you an example of this. More than once, me and John had to sit down with people who were gifted, talented, knowledgeable. But we discerned that they weren't right in their heart. And when people are ambitious, and they're gifted, and they want to teach, or they want to lead worship, and they want to do something, they don't want to hear wait. They don't want to hear get your house in order. They just want to be there. They want recognition. I want to be in the front. I'm gifted. God's called me. I'm anointed. I'm double anointed. This is where I'm supposed to be. I had a gentleman tell me that. And I had to bring to his attention, but you know, the cops were called to your house three times in the last two months for domestic violence. (laughs) Do you think that maybe we can wait a little while here? Didn't want to hear that? Went to another church. You see, when you see that kind of pretense, Pastor, your sermons are great. This church, everything's great. Oh, by the way, you know, I can preach, I can sing, I can dance, I can do all this kind of stuff. You sit around for a year or two and and we'll wait and see what God does in your life. Oh, no, I can't wait. How careful we got to be as pastors to make sure that this kind of ambition doesn't try to work its way up into the front of the church. It's the last thing any church needs. And how important it is to have church discipline, to watch out for this. It is our job to recognize that God has called people. It's our job to recognize that God has gifted people. It's our call, it's our call, it's it's our job to to recognize that God people want to serve God, but we got to be careful that make sure that they're doing it for all the right reasons. Third, pretense. I asked in the beginning, who who would think they're lying to God? Nobody would say I'm lying to God. We live in a world that puts on our masks. We live in a world that people try to make it sound like they're better than what? They really are. the, The world teaches you, just put on an image. Hide the inner self, hide the inner feelings, just make it look good. Peter had pretense. Lord, everybody else would leave you, but not me. I'm willing to die for you. Oh, yeah? Stick around when the rooster crows. You're going to deny me three times. Peter thought he was more than he really was. But what's the difference between Peter and Ananias and Sapphira? See, Peter was teachable. He was ignorant. The other two were willful. They sat under the teaching of the apostles and they never changed. They saw the ministry and the operation of the Holy Spirit 
never touched them. They wanted to be part of, they wanted the recognition, but they were not teachable, they were not humble. Peter, as soon as he heard, he was crushed on the inside. He wept bitterly when he recognized that his his pretense, his mass, his self-deception was that the game was over. The Bible says he wept bitterly. And that's how God has to deal with all of us. There are times in our life we really think we we're better than we really are. All of us, myself included, please, if you are a believer, God is going to teach you lessons in this area. Am I right? Yes. It's one of the greatest lessons a believer has to learn. But a true believer learns. Like Peter, we learn. And most of the time we learn with bitter weeping. When I look at myself and say, God, what a jerk I am. What a real jerk. You see, church, in the, you don't have to put anything on. Be who you are. If you're weak, tell the Lord you're weak. If it, whatever it is, tell another brother in Christ. Tell a sister in Christ. Pray over it. Tell, he knows it all. Let's not lie to the Holy Spirit and make it sound like it's, we got it all together. We don't have it all together. We all need God's teaching. Understand something. But how does God work in our life the way he worked in Peter's life? And the work out the pretenses of Peter. Sometimes we have to come show to show. He has to show us that we're not who we are. But most of the time it's through pastoral care. It's through preaching. And it's through teaching. And it's through counseling. And it's through circumstance that God works these things out of our life. But you want to know something? You know how God works pretense out of our life? Just from being in the ministry so many years. Personal confrontation between believers. Tension. Tension brings out things. Tension says it brings something out in us. It's one of the ways God reveals things about us. It's one of the ways God reveals things that are blind spots in our life. That we don't know are there. That's why Christian community is so important because without being part of the local body of Christ where iron sharpens iron so does one man sharpen another without that you can never change into the image of Christ. We can't do it. We need one another. That's the way it works through teaching, through preaching, through counseling, through Tension within the body of Christ, God changes us from one degree of glory to the other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, like always, taking this and driving it home, Lord, as I had to look at my own life, Father God, and all the pretense you've worked out and still working out in my life, still revealing in my heart, Father God, that sometimes we want to be recognized as something more than what we really are. God, help us. Just to accept who we are with our gifts and our weaknesses, with our strengths, with our failures, with our gifts and talents and every other thing, God. Just help us to be who you've called us to be. Transform us from the inside out, Father God. Please, I ask God, come into our life and rip off the mask of pretense, God. Let us be genuine and pure in the inside. And let us cry out with David. 
God, you desire truth in the inward parts. In Jesus' name.